Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, guys, if, uh, if you're tuning in for Tax Tuesday, you're in the right spot. So first off, welcome to Tax Tuesday. We'll just jump right on in. We'll let some of you guys get into the, uh, get into the platform. Jeff, I got to tell you, I have it easy where I'm at because I have multiple screens and I can actually look at the questions and I can actually see my mouse. Right. <laughs> yeah, tell us where you're, where you're from. Where you're sitting right now, that's even better. I'm in Las Vegas. Oh, Jeff. Let's see. We got San Jose. Jeff has accountants. Orlando, Florida. I am in Hollywood, Florida. Santa Barbara, San Jose. Long Island, New York. Atlanta, Las Vegas. Delaware, Long Beach. Now we're starting to get them. Hi, Patty. Burien, Washington. I went to school there. Richmond, Arkansas, D.C., New Jersey, San Jose, Austin, Roanoke, Roseville, Sarasota, Colorado cities, Lawrenceville, San Diego, where Patty's at, New York City, Dallas, Forest Worth, Liberty Hill, San Antonio, Southern California, San, San Luis Obispo, uh, Maui, there we go. Oh, we got them from everywhere. Playa del Rey, Hilo, South San Francisco. We've got people from everywhere, Illinois. That's awesome. So first off, happy Tuesday. Happy day. Uh, I guess it's not the day after the 4th of July, but two days after. Happy day after recovering from the 4th of July. Uh, let's dive right on in. How was your 4th, Jeff? I didn't lose any fingers, so it was a good day. It's a good figure. It was a good day. You know that we had a guy back when we were in... Uh, Seattle when we first opened who was missing his thumb because he was holding an M80 and took it off. <laughs> yeah, somebody says they look like I got to. I just turn pink, guys. When I go out in the sun, I pretty much just turn pink. But I'm uh, down here visiting my wife's old stomping grounds in Miami, so we're running around. It's uh, beautiful here. And uh, unfortunately, we are probably five minutes away from Surfside. So if you guys know what happened there, it's real sad, tragic, what occurred with that family or with that uh, building and all those families. Horrible. But the area is uh, pretty, except we've got a little bit of rain today because we've got the tropical storm headed to Tampa, I guess. God knows where it's going. Pretty sure it's, it's pretty much like a puppies. You let them out and you just don't know where they're going to go. I think with hurricanes, it's about the same. You could say, eh, probably over there in that vicinity. God knows. No hurricane worries. All right, let's dive in. Uh, you can ask your questions on the chat. If you notice, we like to comment to anything that happens to go up in the chat. If you have questions pertaining to something that, uh, that uh, our folks can help you with, I'll let you know that we have on. We got a whole bunch of folks. We got Christos, Dana Cummings, Elliot, Ian, Tricia. Patty on. Who else do we have on? Is, 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 I miss any. Matthew's yeah, on. Yeah. You, Jeff. Jeff Webb, CPA. I'm just a tax attorney. Doesn't really, doesn't really count. If you have questions during the, the the two weeks in between our sessions, you can always send them in via Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. We answer your questions, guys. If it gets too specific to your situation, then we will want you to become either platinum or become a client so we can give you actual appropriate advice rather than just giving you a quickie answer. But you can absolutely shoot us the uh, questions. We go through those questions. Kendall well, Leary does, and she grabs a bunch of the questions and says, here's the questions that you can answer live. And that's what we do. So it's a lot of fun. Anyway, so it's supposed to be fast, fun, and educational. We try to get through your guys' questions. We try to be as transparent as humanly possible. We answer a lot of things, sometimes correctly. Right, Jeff? Sometimes. I don't know. Most silently. We're pretty good. But uh, we'll give you exactly our, our opinion on things. We don't, we don't play around with a bunch of hyperbole. And uh, we don't couch everything like well you know i need to spend 10 hours investigating no we'll give you an answer here's some opening questions 
I own single family houses, rentals, two in Utah, two in Tennessee, three in Florida. What's the best way to own them under a series LLC? When using a series LLC to own properties in several states, only one series own them all, or how does it work? So we'll go over that. Business vehicles, should I buy or lease? What are the pros and cons of each? Do trucks and SUVs have an added deduction? We'll answer that. These next couple are really long questions. Jeff said, Toby, there's a bunch of crazy questions today. Yeah, they're long. I'm in the process of selling my home and looking to use the capital gains to purchase an investment property in an OZ in Illinois. What things do I need to consider prior to closing? How should I apply those funds when I find a property, whether a rehab, land to build, or operational property? Do I need to use the funds within a specific period of time? So we'll go over that. Uh, hi, I'm a personal representative of my brother's estate. And I'm so sorry to hear that. If you're a personal representative, it means your brother's past. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm receiving the money from a Merrill Lynch retirement account to be deposited into the estate account. Is it better for the estate to pay the taxes on the money before distributing to heirs or distributing the money and letting the heirs of the estate be responsible for remitting the taxes? Also, what is the effective tax rate under each scenario? So really good question. And we'll give you some clarity on, on, on what to do here in just a second. I have an S-Corp and need an office space large enough to shoot video. Can I rent a privately owned house that I also live in and deduct a portion of the rent for office purposes? More specifically, is it legal for the homeowner to give my company an invoice for a portion of the rent? We'll answer that. Can I pocket money? I like this one. Can I pocket money when I file taxes uh, when there is no profit in the business? We'll get into that. Are solar 401ks impacted by the new IRS rules for IRA accounts? I think they're talking about the SECURE Act there. How many properties should one have before considering doing a cost segregation? We'll dive into that one. I'm buying a beach property in a month and planning on short-term running it for the summer via Airbnb. It has a separate garage with plumbing. I could live in all year, but I would probably move back into the house. What are my best tax structure options? Interesting question. If I decide not to buy a replacement uh, property through a 1031 exchange, I'll end up paying capital tax or capital gains. Yeah. But will doing owner financing help to reduce the capital gains tax? So we'll go over all these. This is fun. I see a bunch of questions already going into the chat. If you can use the use the question and answer, it says Q&A or no, it says question and answer actually. So there's chat and question and answer. Try to use the question and answer for that because our guys will answer all your questions today. Like you guys got free, free services. Somebody says, do you plan to do a video for new IRS rules for IRA accounts? And we're going to be talking about it some tonight. We'll see where we end up under the Secure Act. All right. Jeff. Hey, Toby. I own single family homes, rentals. Two in Utah, two in Tennessee, three in Florida. What is the best way to own them under a series LLC? And when I own a bunch of, when, I, when using series LLCs to own property in several states, only one series own them, or how does it work? So the question is actually, how do I do it? My thought on this is, my opinion, series LLCs doesn't work that well for multiple states. You got two properties in Utah two in Tennessee, three in Florida. I would rather set them up separately in each of those states. And one of the important things I saw here is two of them are in Tennessee. So we want to make sure those are owned, even if by an LLC, through uh, owned by an individual. And the reason is in Tennessee, that franchise tax can get really expensive. Mm -hmm. So having them owned either directly or indirectly by individuals uh, helps decrease that tax. You have the funds. You have the uh, family-owned non-corporate entity exclusion, right? So to the franchise tax in Tennessee, I think. Yeah, but usually when you're doing a series LLC, it's it's in one state, correct? Right. So, so if I was pulling this apart, I would say, first off, there's about 14 states that have the statute. It might even be less than that, that have some sort of series LLC statute. So they're not recognized in all states. Even if you are in a state that does not recognize them, it doesn't mean that you can't use it. It means you have to use a different vehicle in that state. So a lot of folks will use a land trust, for example, to own a property 
assign its beneficial interest to the out-of-state series. But then your home state, what is it going to do with that? So like California says, oh, any series that is owned by a California resident is considered a LLC, a separate LLC for franchise tax purposes, and they'll assess the $800 to per, per LLC. The other consideration is there's no uniform series LLC act. So we don't really know what's going to happen in each state yet. Like we know, like, for example, California might say, hey, we're just going to treat it as an LLC. Okay, good. Then they're going to recognize it and they're going to apply the California laws to it. And if all you're trying to do is separate it out, yeah, then maybe you set up a Wyoming LLC and you use land trusts and you try to avoid making sure that you're using a trust as the owner of the actual LLC. And then each of the series might be owned by that, uh, either by the the parent or by another uh, another trust, for example. We'd probably use a Wyoming statutory trust. But you're, what you're trying to do is make sure that you have arguments not to pay the franchise tax because it's not actually there. And you're working around it. In these other states, it would be a little technical. I know that uh, Utah and Tennessee do have statutes on a series LLC. So you could use those, but for two, I'd probably just use, like you said, I'd probably just do the actual two LLCs. I do two LLCs in Tennessee that are owned by the individual. And I would assign that, that interest over to a holding entity, but you need to make sure that it's the individual that owns that LLC to avoid the franchise tax. And then in Florida, I'd either like you technically, I, I could use the series I'd probably use the series in Utah, but it'd be a little bit of a, a little bit of a have to look at the statute, make sure that we're not doing anything wrong. But you do have protections on land trusts in Florida that perhaps we use the Florida land trust for those three in Florida and assign the beneficial interest. The other issue with that we encounter all the time with series, and I'm not saying don't use a series, I'm saying go in with your eyes open, is that when you use a series LLC, the banks won't bank the series because there's nothing filed with the state. And so you're always going to run against that and you're going to get freaked out because you're going to have a, you know, you have the parent, the, the, the main LLC with all of its series and the series aren't filed anywhere and the banks won't bank them. They want to see it filed with the Secretary of State. They want to see that it actually exists rather than just conjured out of paper. So, you know, again, just being cognizant of these things. So most conservative route is to put each property in its own LLC in the state where that real estate is located and assign those LLCs to a holding LLC. If there's any sort of debt, you're probably like, especially in Florida, you're going to be using a land trust. And you could use land trusts and all these as well, and uh, get your name off of the off of the public record if you want. With this many properties, I'd probably start considering that for sure. There's a lot of protection in anonymity, just not letting people see all your properties. So uh, that's our experience. And if you want to learn more, I'll give you guys a link to come to our tax and asset protection class. We teach one a, about one a month. Uh, Clint and I do, and there's one coming up. So I'll make sure that we. Uh, get that out and it's absolutely free. So don't worry, I'll get you that link before we're done today. Anything else you want to throw on that one, Jeff? No, it sounds good. All right. Business vehicles, buy or lease, what are the pros and cons and do trucks and SUVs have an added deduction? Jeff? Most times I, I hear more often people suggest that you buy than lease. If you're buying a truck or an SUV and you want that, and I'm talking a heavy over 6,000 pound truck or SUV, you probably want to buy it to get the deduction in the first year. If you lease it, you're going to have to just deduct however much your, your lease payments are each year. One thing I might suggest if you're talking about buying a sedan or coupe and it's expensive, you may want to lease it instead of buying it. And the reason for that is the depreciation is limited on sedans and coupes and vehicles in general under 6,000 pounds. So you're limited to how much you're going to be able to deduct each year. Whereas if you're leasing it, you can usually deduct the entire lease payment. Otherwise, like a, a bigger SUV that doesn't have the forward seats or the large enough bed, I think it's six feet. If it's not meeting some of the exceptions, then what is it, 25000 or there's, there's a max that they get on the year, on the uh, per year? Oh, yes. I think it's less than that. I want to say 18000 
because you get the uh i think it's because you get the 179 plus you get the the mackers the uh the five year so you'd be right around 25k i think point is is that if you have big equipment and you're using it more than 50 percent in your business then we have that conversation if you are using your business if you're using your vehicle sparingly then I'm going to say it's so much easier just to do the mileage reimbursement. I think we're at 56 cents right now to do the mile reimbursement, not worry about tracking actual expense and trying to prove that you're using it over 50%. The problem with if you have a vehicle and you accelerate or if you take depreciation, like we like, like we uh, depreciated even above the straight line, we use 179 and we try to take some of that. And then it falls below that 50% threshold is you could have a nasty tax hit of all that uh, ordinary income coming back and, and being assessed to you because it's no longer business asset. And they're going to say, oh, it doesn't meet it for that, that five-year test, for example, on, real, on, uh, on cars. And so you could end up with an adverse tax consequence by accident simply because it's no longer business equipment and, and it's personal property, which is non-depreciable. So if you're not using it more than 50%, if you're using a sedan, then we're going to have a little bit of a different bit of advice for you. If you're using, if you're doing heavy equipment, heavy truck, something that's very specific to your company, construction company, for example, then there's some big incentives to accelerating that depreciation. Uh, you could even do bonus under this, right? Uh, depending on the type of equipment, Jeff. Yes. And so, uh, this is where I say, talk to an advisor. What are the pros and cons? If you're doing a lease, you get to write off the lease payment that's attributed to the business. So if you're doing 60, 40 personal versus business, you could write off 40% of the lease and any of the other uh, actual expenses. So if you're buying you know, gas and things like that for, that, for, for the year, you, you could uh, reimburse yourself. 40% of all those costs. If you don't want to deal with that nonsense, just do the mileage reimbursement. Personally, I think that's the easiest way to go is to get mile IQ and do 56 cents a mile. So hopefully we answered that one. Do you have anything else you want to throw up? No, I don't have anything. How often do you get asked to do that analysis and the vehicle is actually being used enough in the business to make it work? Unfortunately, we usually see it happen after they've already purchased the vehicle. So we really don't get the chance to do the analysis that often. And unfortunately, most of these vehicles we're told are 100% business use. So we, we don't know the real breakdown of what the usage is. Could the individual just sell it to the business under those circumstances? They could actually just contribute it to the business and make it an asset of the, asset of the business. And if they do that, they probably want to uh, retitle the vehicle to the business. The one side of this that I've never really liked is that when you do, uh, once a property is in that business, anything that that vehicle does is going to be attributed to the business. So if you have a, a business that has some cash or some assets in it, you're bringing in some more liability in there. Because even if it's personal use, it doesn't matter. They're going to sue the business. I've seen these on a few occasions where it's like one of the family members was using it. Doesn't matter. The business gets sued because it's being attributed as a, as a business vehicle or being owned by the, the business. The other side is the insurance tends to be more. So make sure that you're actually asking your insurance whether or not you're going to need a commercial policy if the vehicle is held in the name of the business. Uh, you might be surprised to find out that it's a little bit of an increase that you weren't expecting, in which case it's sometimes easier just to keep it again personal and reimburse reimburse the mileage. Uh, question and answer. Let's see. Ooh, a lot of questions. They're just busting through them because we have so many folks on here. Somebody says, currently holding property in a Florida land trust and myself as a beneficiary. I want to change the beneficiary to a Florida LLC with myself as a manager and an irrevocable grantor trust set up as a spendthrift trust as myself as trustee and my nine-year-old son is a beneficiary only receiving benefit when he returns when he turns 25 and only okay so there's this is a lot of specific questions one llc for property do you see any pitfalls with the strategy for asset protection so let me unpack this just for a second so this is basically what's going on you got uh real estate and you're concerned about somebody taking it or taking 
assets from you that you want to make sure goes to your child. You want to get it out of your state, I'm assuming. Usually people that are over, let's say, 25 million that are married, they're looking at some substantial estate taxes. So they start getting rid of stuff ahead of time. If you're giving an asset to a minor, you can do do so in like a, a uniform gift to minors act account. You could do a custodial account in some occasions, but it's going to be their asset when they hit 18. So if we want to protect them and not let them have access to it, you're going to have to use the trust. The irrevocable trust is a, you know, is one route to go where you're giving it to that individual. And then you're either filing your tax return for your gift, or you're going underneath the annual limitation, which I think is what, 15,000 this year per spouse to, to give to a child. Yes. So you kind of get into that. Uh, you just have to worry about the gifting. Gifting, we can give up, what, $11.8 million Right. This year. And that's each parent. Yeah, each parent. So you, you could gift it, get it out of your state, get it to your son as a beneficiary. You could even still put a restriction. You could say, hey, you have access at 25 and say something like, so long as you graduated from college or you're gainfully employed and not on substances or whatever you just you could you could put some wiggle room in there to make sure that you don't give somebody who might be uh not ready for it a whole bunch of cash but you could absolutely do it sorry that was a long question in that in the chat it wasn't easy i'm in the process of selling my home and looking to use the capital gains to purchase an investment property in an oz so an opportunity zone i'm assuming in illinois what things do I need to consider prior to closing? How should I apply those funds when I find a property, whether rehab, land, or an operational property? And do I need to use the funds within a specific period of time? Jeff, what say you? Well, the first thing I, I know he said he's selling his home. I'm assuming that's a primary residence. So we got to make sure we're, we're considering the 121 exclusion, which would allow him to exclude up to a half a million dollars of gain. Now, if it's a second home or something else, or he's got more gain than a half a million, he needs to set up the qualified opportunity fund within the next 180 days so he can invest in that fund. Now, I believe the property doesn't have to be purchased until another 180 days, Toby. Yeah. So the opportunity zone fund has to put it, it has to go into the opportunity zone fund within 180 days of the taxable event or January 1st, if you're not in control of the transaction, I think he would have the 180 days from the date of the sale. If you on the capital gains, so you can defer it and you put it into the fund, then the fund has to spend a percentage, I think it's like 90% of its money on opportunity zone property, which is usually you're setting up another entity that's going to buy land that's going to be developed and you're going to have some of it in cash and some of it in, in land, and you're going to use the cash set aside on that property. And what you're doing is you're deferring your tax uh, for really five years at this point. You're going to get a five-year deferral on the gain. And the only reason you would do this is because you think that the opportunity zone is going to get huge. And then after 10 years, you don't have to worry about the gain until about 2045 where you'd make a complete step up. So I look at this and I read it the same way you did. I said, oh, you're home. And I'm thinking, well, first off, it's real estate, 1031 exchange, 121 exclusion are sitting here. Why wouldn't we just use that and exclude a bunch of gain? The only time you wouldn't is if there's non-qualified use of that property or you have depreciation on that property that you can't get rid of under 121, in which case that I'm wondering whether they would not just convert it into an investment property, qualify it under 1031 and just 1031 it into more investment property and never pay tax. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of with you. I'm thinking that they see the opportunity zone and they're thinking, this is really good. I really want to get into this but without really thinking you're going to pay tax on this in five years. And you're doing this because you're not going to pay tax on something after 10 years if it grows in value. And you're going to have about a 20-year window of gain that you're not going to have to pay tax on when we get to uh, 2045 again. I think, yeah, you'd end up with about 25 years of, of growth. So I'm kind of looking at it and go, what, what should I be considering? 
whether you should be doing that at all because opportunity zones are a pain in the butt. There's a bunch of other rules and you have to use the money to improve the property. You're going to have to increase whatever the the improvement basis on that property is. You're going to have to improve it by, by at least what it's worth. So it could be a little, little frustrating and you have the tax hit. You're almost always better off doing the 121 exclusion where you'll never have to worry about it ever again or a 1031 exchange where, you know, you could keep 1031 exchanging and never pay tax on that revenue. One thing that's always bothered me about the OZ is it requires you to put most of your capital gain into the OZ. However, there's a tax coming down the road. If you you said it was five years, you'd have to pay the 85% of the tax. What if they increase the capital gains tax, right? Yeah. Are you still going to have any cash left if you've invested it all in this OZ? Are you going to have cash left to pay the tax on this property that you sold. Very real issue that uh, I don't think about that much. And I don't think a lot of people think about the fact that they have to be ready to pay the tax. It's not like you can just sit there and put the money aside. If you do, it's not going to be qualified for the exclusion. You're going to pay tax on it right away. Again, I'm not a big fan of opportunity zones. Some people are, some people think they're the second coming, but I've not seen one really used effectively. And it's not getting us out of pain. Like, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised when they have a million dollars of capital gains, especially if this, if all of a sudden capital gains are at the highest bracket, they're not going to be too pleased. But uh, either way, I think that they're, they're usually not prepared for the fact that they do get that tax hit. They do get a step up in basis of 10%. So they're only going to pay a 90% of the gain. But, you know, again, you're still paying tax on it. All right. Hi, I'm the personal representative of my brother's estate, and I'm receiving the money from a Merrill Lynch retirement account to be deposited into the estate account. Is it better for the estate to pay the tax on the money before distributing to the heirs or distributing the money and letting the heirs of the estate be responsible for remitting the taxes? Also, what is the effective tax rate under each scenario? What do you think of this? Well, the first thing I noticed was they were receiving money from the Merrill Lynch retirement account, and those accounts usually have direct beneficiaries. So that money should actually just be distributed by Merrill Lynch to the beneficiaries. Let's unless they didn't establish beneficiaries. Yeah, let's assume that brother left the contingent beneficiary as the living trust to go there. So they didn't leave it to anybody in particular. Because you're right, that would just be, if it's a spouse, you would just roll it into an account, the spousal account, right? Yeah, like, like my uh, beneficiaries are my son's. So but your, son, your sons can't stretch it anymore under the SECURE Act, right? Your, your kids have to distribute that money within 10 years. Yes. Spouse can put it out over their lifetime. Yes. So this is brother and I don't know who the heirs are, but if there is a spouse and that is something we want to do a quick timeout and say, hey, is the, is the spouse on there? If not, can we still roll it to the spouse? I believe you still can. Mm-hmm. Even if the trust takes the funds, the rules are such that it's the life expectancy of the eldest trust beneficiary that rules for the minimum distributions or 10 years, whichever is less. So they're going to, I would not be paying tax on this from the estate. I'd be rolling it to somebody else to put it into their account to pay tax. And they could be looking at paying tax over the next 10 years and just take out distributions. And that's going to be the cleanest. That's the best way to do it. You know, or they could just wait until year 10 and just pay a, take a big hit. Let's assume this is a Merrill Lynch brokerage account that they're cashing out the securities and they're sending the cash to the estate. The estate would only pay taxes on income producing property after your brother's death. And as far as who pays the taxes, beneficiaries or the estate, if there is no income producing property, there is no tax unless your estate exceeds that $11.8 million. There's not even a requirement to file that estate tax return. Is this where we could do some income with respect to a uh, decedent, though, if in that year, if we wanted to take some of the uh, distribution out and make it into cash and give it to them, depending on what the decedent's tax situation is looking like, if they had maybe some unused losses, Typically, you can only uh, do that with income that was earned by the decedent before their death, but paid after their death. I'm just wondering whether you could do, can you do that with any of the retirement account? No. 
The other route is if it wasn't, if it, if it says retirement account, but it's not, let's just assume that this is not an IRA, mm-hmm. that it was just money put aside or a savings account. Because like you said, normally if it's an IRA, 401k, pension plan, 403b, there's a named beneficiary on it. And it's usually going to be a spouse and then kids or spouse and then trust, you know, so, so let's assume that this is not actually a retirement account. There's no named beneficiary. It's in the trust and, or you're, you're handling it as the estate. Then there was a step up in basis where you're not going to have any tax. The only taxes that I'd be worried about in this scenario, depending on the amount is there's going to be federal estate tax, which is going to kick in after $11.8 million. And depending on the state that they passed in, there could be state estate taxes. And depending on who the beneficiary is, there are a handful of states where there's an inheritance tax. So it really, it's really fact specific to your situation. And that's what you're going to be like. That's why you have to you can actually talk to a you know professional trustee. You could talk to an attorney, talk to an accountant, probably the accountant and the professional trustee, because you're looking at saying, hey, I want to see what the issues are for me as to whether, you know, again, how, how should I distribute out these funds and making sure that you're taking uh, the least bite out of it from a tax time. Somebody says, this has happened to me. My spouse passed away and Edward Jones rolled it into a decedent IRA. I can withdraw the money because he was older than 59 and a half. I have to pay income taxes on the money I withdraw. Yeah, but you know, I'm sure you could stretch it. You know, Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm sure you could stretch that out over your lifetime too. But that was with somebody who was, they don't have the penalty because they've already hit it. They don't hit you with the 10% penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can take that uh, withdrawal whenever you want, but you pay the tax on it when you withdraw. I love these types of questions because they're they bring up a lot of issues and everybody realizes, wait a second, you have some choices here. And there's a lot of little nuances. Uh, so just make sure that you're talking to someone that understands the nuances. And, and this is a really common misconception that if I have a million dollars in my bank and I die and my kids inherit it, are they going to have to pay taxes on it? And the answer is usually no, unless it's a very high net worth estate that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in Oregon, I think yes. they have like a million dollar state tax exclusion. Yeah, so there's going to be that side to it. And uh, for the most part, the, there's not a lot of states that have a low estate tax. I think Oregon's the worst. Inheritance tax might cut, kick in. But again, you just check with somebody in your state. Is the step up in basis limited to 10%? No. The step up right now as it sits right now is 100%. So you can get a step up in basis. And that's for the tax hit. So let's say I had a bunch of, let's say I had a bunch of real estate and I, my basis was a million dollars and it was worth $5 million for it. And I pass away in, depending on what state you live in, it could be a hundred percent, even if you have, even if you have a surviving spouse, but let's say you're in California, surviving spouse, community property steps up to the $5 million spouse could sell the property tomorrow and have no federal income taxes. That doesn't mean that they don't have a state tax. It doesn't mean that they don't have I think California follows the Fed. There wouldn't be any mm-hmm. state, state tax. So for the most part, you're going you're gonna to get away like really well if you're in a community property state. If, even in a non-community property state, there's four states now that have these kind of funky trusts that you could do. But you're still going to get at least a half a step up. If parents pass away, leave assets to their kids, the basis of those assets, if they're capital assets, will step up to its fair market value on the data passing, which is extremely effective. But it is something that Biden's mentioned. It's on the chopping block, although I, don't, I can't see it. I think it's, again, those are red herrings to get people to negotiate. I can't see that. It's like you would get run out of town pretty quick if you started messing with 1031 exchanges or step up in basis. There's just too many people that have their wealth tied up in real estate that would not stand for it. All right? Anything else on that one, Jeff? I just clicked right nope. off. So to whoever wrote this, by the way, feel free to reach out to us. I know this stuff is tough. And when you lose somebody, especially a, a sibling, it's confusing and you're going to get lots of weird advice. Some people have a dog in the fight. So you can always reach out and just get some 10,000 foot view advice from folks that don't have anything, don't have an interest in it. 
All right, aba.link forward slash tap 17. If you would like to go to the tax and asset protection event, I don't think of which one, I can't even read it. It's, uh, there it is, July 17th, going to be from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Clint and I will be teaching it, I believe, and uh, it's free, so feel free to come on out. And Clint does a really good job of breaking down the the anonymity side. You know, it's, it's having protection by not letting people see your stuff. And when I say people can't see your stuff, it doesn't mean you're hiding it from the IRS. It doesn't mean you're hiding it from banks. It means that from a public record standpoint, somebody can't just go find all your properties and say, aha, this is what Jeff owns. He's that guy that, that rear-ended me and it didn't really bother me, but uh, now I think my back really hurts. I think he's got something to lose. So that's what you don't want. Or you get into a car accident and you make that fatal mistake of admitting that you're a doctor when you're talking to them. Oh, I'm a doctor. Don't ever say that. <laughs> Just saying. We see it. That was actually the number one issue from a real estate, from not real estate, but uh, from an insurance gal that runs out of insurance office. She goes, "Just tell all your doctor clients, don't try to be so helpful during car accidents. They they get themselves in more trouble by saying that they're a doctor, and then the lawyers are all over them. Really? Oh, that's great. All right, I have an S corp and need an office space large enough to shoot video." How can I rent a privately owned house that I also live in and deduct a portion of the rent for office purposes? More specifically, is it legal for the homeowner to give my company an invoice for a portion of the rent? What say you, Jeff? Well, the one thing you don't want to do is invoice your S corporation for the rent. That's going to generate income in your name. It's not a good situation. An exception to that. What what I was going to say was I would instead of instead of sending them an invoice for rent is I would have that S corporation reimburse me for the office space. You could do that all day long. It's not income to you, but it is deductible to your S corporation. Great point. There's one other side to that. Okay. 280A. This is actually what the uh, private letter ruling was specifically on, was somebody rented their house uh, to their S corp for video. I believe it was video. It's either that or a party, but you could absolutely do it. But 14 days or less, it's 280A, and you could rent to the company. And as long as it's 14 days or less, total days rented, you do not have to report the income, recognize the income or anything. If you're above 14 days, so in other words, you're not going to, you're going to be shooting every week. I'm with Jeff. What you're going to do is you're going to look at your net usable square feet. We're not going to use just square footage. You're going to use your net usable square footage. So you're going to remove out, you know, bathrooms and some of the hallways and, you know, depending on whether there's non-usable space, measure it out. And we're going to figure out what that ratio is. If that doesn't work, then we're going to look at the number of rooms in the property. And we're going to find out what that ratio is that you're using. And so that will allow you to reimburse. And it's, this is what's cool is when you do what Jeff said, when you're doing it a it has to be an S corp or a C corp or an LLC taxes an S corp or a C corp. When you have an accountable plan, it's literally free cash. The company's writing it off as an office expense. You don't have to report it. And it's for the portion of depreciation of property taxes. If you have a cleaner of the cleaner bill, any expenses, utilities. So if you're paying electric, water, gas, all those things. You get to reimburse yourself whatever portion. So if it's 20% that you're using for the for the studio, then it's 20% of all those expenses. And it's not a small amount. That'll end up being on a typical house, probably five, six thousand dollars a year. Am I overstating that, Jeff? Is that pretty good? No, I agree. I, and instead of saying give my company an invoice, I would give my company an expense reimbursement form. Very good. And what it Jeff says exactly what you're being reimbursed for. Yeah, you're doing an expense report. So I'm not charging you. I'm asking you to reimburse me because I came out of pocket for that property. Yeah, it's like Jeff. Like you look at Jeff, look at his Oval Office. So if, if I needed to use that Oval Office and I said to Jeff, hey, I need to use that. And that's, that's one of 20 rooms in his house. And one, one 20th of all the costs, I should have to reimburse him for. Jeff, I wish you were in the Oval Office. 
Oh, I don't want that job. You'd be a pretty good president. All right. Can I pocket money when I file taxes when there is no profit in the business? Most times, IRS is only going to refund you money. And I, I'm guessing that's what they're talking about. Though. I think they're talking about, can I take cash out of it, even if there's no money? And I'm going to say a big resounding, yeah, if it's your business and you're running a business and there's no profit in the business, you can take the cash out. But they said, when I file taxes, mm-hmm. when there's no profit with the business. I think what they're saying is, hey, even if I don't show paper profit, can I take money out? The only time you can't is when you take money in excess of your basis and you're not at risk for the business. So like if you're an investor and I invest in Jeff's syndication, we do an apartment building, I've gotten my money back and now they start giving me more money because we borrowed against the apartment building and they said, oh, we just got a bunch of cash. We're going to distribute it out. In that case, I'm going to pay long-term capital gains on whatever portion exceeds what I put into it. But when I'm a business owner and I'm at risk, I'm on the loans, I'm on the hook, then I can take whatever money out I have. Yeah. Somebody says, if I have a, if I have profit for a business and decide to donate it to the church, do I need to pay taxes? It depends on the type of business. If it's in a a C-Corp, you can give away what's this year's 25% of your net profit. Is it that high? It it was 25 last year, but that was under the CARES Act. I wonder if they extended it. Otherwise, it's 10%. But as an individual, you can give away 100% of your adjusted gross income in cash. Give it to your church and not pay any tax on that. Hey, uh, speaking of money, uh, just to put this back out there, Infinity Investing, it was the number one bestseller. I don't know what it is today. It goes on and off of different lists. It was number one bestseller on three different occasions on three different lists book we wrote, uh, published it in April, and uh, getting a little bit of attraction. We're on the third printing, which is pretty neat, which being said, it's people are being good about it. You can see the ratings there, 68 ratings. I think it's more than that now, but we got a lot of five-star reviews. I like it because I wrote it and because it helps you guys be great clients, make you guys make more money, which gives you guys... Uh, uh, good tax issues, which means when you're making lots of money, it's when you usually get the uh, the tax issues. A few people said read it. My son is reading it now. Great book. Thank you. And somebody says I submitted some questions. Yeah. Go ahead and uh, Brendan, send it to Patty. I have no idea. I don't get the, the Kindle suggestions. Great book, Infinity Investing. I recommend it to everyone. And it was, it was published through Forbes. So if you see a typo, I'm going to blame them, right? Maybe. But anyway, it's a good starting point, and it's a non-BS. It's very straightforward. Here's what you do, ABC. And it's because guys like Jeff and I see returns all day long of people that make money and people that lose money. And I can predict whether you're going to make money or lose money with deadly accuracy just by knowing kind of what you're investing in. Usually, probably 99. What would you say? You're about 99% accuracy, Jeff, now when you see what people are doing. Or do you think you're maybe less? Well, yeah. And a lot of it has to do, well, some of it is the effort put into the the business. Uh, some of it is what are you investing in, knowledge, and, and many things. But usually when you get into things that you don't know exactly what you're doing, you're going to lose money. We see a lot of folks that get in and, and you, when, when something is very, very exciting. Oh, somebody said, what are your thoughts on Penn? El Presidente loves that it. it keeps going up. It's not something that sits on our fundamentals. So Joseph, it's not something I would invest in individually just because it's it's not what I look for. I look for income producing companies that have compounders. So there's only about 60 companies that we really pay attention to because we're looking at revenue that they generate. We're not looking at their growth. So we buy things and hold on to them forever. What we care about is not buying it low, selling it high. We care about the income that it's producing uh, so you can retire and not worry about the thing going up and down. Anyway, you f- feel free to go peruse. There's a few folks that are the, the Vine voice, which means that they're top reviewers and they give us a pretty good, they, they give a straight up review. And I, I'm thick skin. You can tell me that I'm ugly and that my book sucks and it just doesn't bother me at all. If, but if you say, hey, here's something else I would like. 
I take that stuff to heart. So we, when we when we go and we look at it, we try to make sure that we're addressing all the issues to make it easy for people to go out there and make some more money. No, we don't make anything off of you making money. We make money when you have tax issues and asset protection issues after you've made money. So we like to help you guys keep it, create a legacy on issue taxes. All right. Next one, are solo 401ks impacted by the new IRS rules for IRA accounts? These are primarily two different tax codes, 401ks versus IRAs are under 401a. But what usually happens when they come out with new IRS rules are not just for one or the other. There may have rules that impact both and they usually say what the impact. Now, I think what they're talking about is the Securing a Strong Retirement Act which I believe is still sitting in Congress. Oh, it passed two years ago. No, it, it died in the 116th Congress. No, this isn't the Secure Act. This is a new another act. one. This is another this one. Is Secure 2.0. That one hasn't passed. Yes, you're right. So I'm I'm thinking of the Secure Act, and it was it was applicable to both the 10 year rules and right. things. Like that. So when you say the the new rules for IRAs, it's it's usually new rules for retirement accounts. You're talking about them getting rid of no ruling into for, uh, to Roth IRAs. They're talking about. You can't convert to Roth IRAs. Gosh, they have a plethora of things that they're trying to like. They're they're mad at the Roth because of the you know they're they're dusting off stories from ten years ago to get mad at people again because you know we had somebody make five billion dollars in a Roth and escape taxation like they would have paid tax on it in the first place. Guys, when people make billions of dollars at, in their portfolio. They don't sell their shares to live. They borrow against their shares to live, wait to die, basis steps up. They give away most of it during their life to charities so that when they do occasionally sell off a chunk of stock that they don't have to pay tax on. So the idea that somehow this, there was, a, again, it was the PayPal guy, he made a whole bunch of money in a Roth and they're still up in arms about it. The IRS went after him, they lose. So they were all ticky tacky. The fact that uh, they bring these things up, I always say, like, what would the win have looked like? Like, the guy wouldn't have sold it. If he did, it would be a minimal tax in the first place. It's like, Mm -hmm. these folks, it's not a coincidence that there's information being linked right now on billionaires and that they're bringing up these tax proposals at the same time. You guys, a lot of of these rules are, are targeted against the exceptions, not to the general population. However, the rules are affecting the general population. It'll be interesting to see who's willing to actually torch their career over tossing something like a Roth. I just can't see it. Yeah, Peter Thiel, original PayPal mafia, invested in Facebook for 20,000 times return through his Roth IRA after the PayPal payoff. Yeah. They bring out those things and play a little bit of class warfare in my mind. Rules are the rules. Just play by the rules and don't begrudge somebody because they had a windfall because they played by the rules. Like, what are the chances of that happening again? And frankly, that money's still going to, like, it's still going to come out. Somebody says, can you give up your HEI to your own nonprofit? Yeah. 501c3, not a uh, private foundation of operating charity. What if you already have a donor advised fund? Can you transfer that to your nonprofit as well if they allow you to? We have a donor advice fund at Anderson that we're rolling out that, yes, you will be able to do it. That's the exact reason. A lot of them will restrict and say, hey, it's only certain charities. They'll have religious exceptions and things like that. They don't like giving it to churches. How many properties should one have before considering doing cost segregation? One property is enough for me. You should uh, always consider it. It's just, it's just a different way of treating your property. So, so the other side of that is not how many properties you have, but are you able to take the deductions you would generate from cost segregation? Do you uh, have passive income? Yes. If you have passive income. One property could save you from paying tax on that. Is it worth it? You just run the numbers. Calculate, calculate, calculate. I agree. All right. We have some more questions. It looks like, wow, Ian, Christos, Elliot, Dana, all these guys are hammering away. Even Patty, I see her name in there, have answered 131 written questions. So these guys are rambling through it. Wow, that is crazy. So I'm not going to have to answer a bunch. There's somebody saying Roth conversion, taxable event, reporting it on my 1040. 
Here's one thing, uh, Richard, when you think about doing a Roth conversion, here's the general rule. You ready? If your tax is high now compared to what it will be when you retire, in other words, if you think your taxes are going to go down when you retire, do not do a conversion. If you think that your taxes are going to go up when you retire, do the conversion. But I'll just tell you that the average tax rate goes down when you retire. So that's it. Just consider that. So if you're in a really high tax bracket, don't convert. If you're in a lower tax bracket, convert. If you think you have the next greatest investment that's maybe on uh, an over-the-counter or maybe you're taking a company public or something, you can do that. I have to think about that. Maybe. So if you think you got like a great investment, then maybe. But otherwise, no, it, doesn't, it almost never makes sense. That's why kids are so awesome to do a Roth because it's almost always zero, right? They pay, they pay very little in tax. All right. I am buying a beach property in a month and planning on short-term renting it for the summer via Airbnb. It has a separate garage with plumbing. I could live in it all year, but would probably move back to the house. So I think they're talking about the apartment there or the uh, garage. What is my best tax structure options? What do you say? I say in a situation like this, the 14-day rule bites you in both directions. And there's two 14-day rules. If you rent it out for more than 14 days, it becomes income to you. Less than 14, day, 14 days or less, that rent is not income to you. It's a great roller that I love. But what if they're doing short-term for the summer? So it sounds like it's multiple months. So I don't think we're going to be 280A here. Well, the other side of it, if you're living in it for uh, more than 14 days or 10% of the amount of time you rent it out, then your losses are limited to how much you make. And you're going to be, you're going to be like, if you live in a portion of it and you lease out a portion of it, you're going to get an aggregate portion of the depreciation for the, for the whole amount, right? Like mm-hmm. you're going to have to figure out what portion you're using it for, what portion of the house. So you're actually going to have three things kind of going on. You have a use of a portion of it and you have the, the rest of it. And you have the amount of time on each that you're using it for personal use versus it's being used for investment purposes. And just because we like to be complicated, because you're doing short-term rental, the question is whether it's it's seven days or less, it's going on Schedule C. And now we have a, a whole other bevy of issues. So the best tax structure under that circumstance would normally be to have the C-Corp lease the property from an LLC. So you'd put your property in an LLC, and then you would lease it to the corporation to do the short-term rentals. And you would just determine how much of that house is being used as an investment property. With it only being rented in the summer and him living in the other nine months of the year. You're not going to get much. No. Now, if you lived in the separate garage, I'm assuming, like you said, apartment over the garage or something like that, you could probably write off the whole year long's worth of rent for the house since you're not living in it. So what you have is the separate garage. That portion would be 100% personal use. The house would be 912, assuming the summer's three months, you know, whatever it's going to be, but let's just say it's three months, then it would be three quarters of the year would be personal use. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that he's also saying he could live in the, the garage all year long. Mm-hmm. But they would probably move back in the house. Yeah. So if you stayed out of the house, if you stayed out of the main house and just lived in the garage and that house was made available for the full year, then you could take the depreciation for the full year, which case what I'd probably do is lease it. I would lease it to the corporation, right? And just have it mm-hmm. on an annual lease. And the corporation would turn around and do the and 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 lease it short, kind of like a Regis or a WeWork. So you could probably what what it basically gets to is doing some calculations again to determine whether it makes sense for you to stay out of that house because you're going to lose a lot of your depreciation by moving the house. The question is, does it really matter? You know, let's see how much you make during the summer. Are there ways to get that money to you tax free? because we have the corporation in the mix that may make it a moot point. You don't care about so much of the depreciation. And it's possible you could just run it out for two, two weeks out of the year, make some pretty good money for a beach summer beach house and not pay taxes on the money. 
just say, hey, maybe it's not worth it. Let's see, if I decide not to buy a replacement property through a 1031 exchange, I will end up paying capital gains. But will doing owner financing help to reduce capital gains tax? I actually like this question because we have, let's say we have a blown 1031. 1031 is not going to happen. If you're financing a sale of your property, uh, you basically have an installment sale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since it was eligible for 1031, it should be eligible for, for installment sale treatment. And you're only recognize the income as it comes in, the capital gain that is. Uh, If there's any um, depreciation recapture, that might have to be recognized in the initial year. But otherwise, that capital gain is going to be recognized. You spread out the the unrecaptured depreciation. The recapture, I was called that. Do you capture that over the same term of the installment sale? Or do you have to recognize that early? Because you haven't received it yet. Well, that's true. And it's going to be limited to your capital gain anyway. I thought it was spread out over time. It might be. So you, you, you have a different things built into owner financing. You have return of your basis, which is zero tax. You have interest, which is going to be ordinary tax. You're going to have capital gains, which depending on how long you held it, is going to be long-term capital gains more than likely. And you're going to have the recapture on depreciation you took. If you did a 1031 exchange, you avoid any of that. If you spread it out over a period of years, you're, you're then you're recognizing it over many tax years, unless you opt out. So some people choose to just, hey, I'll pay the tax now, and then I'll just recognize all that revenue with the exception of the interest. I think you have to pay tax on everything else. You wouldn't have to worry about it. Kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time we look at these, I always look at it, and Jeff and I see the questions the day that we're doing this, we're looking at it. Sometimes we're like, oh my God, these are all kind of like, it's not what it seems questions today. It just seems so interesting. All right. If you have other questions, you can always jump on to the uh, ABA.link YouTube. There's lots of cool videos there. A lot of cool ones. You got coffee with Carl. You got me, you got Pia, you got Clint on there from time to time. You got Michael, you got the whole clan constantly putting up content if you like this type of mind food. If you don't, then it definitely won't be for you. All right, we have a couple more questions and then we'll be done for today. I'm not going to answer the other Q&A. I can see we are now up to 157 questions answered in writing, 12 that are others and nine that are still open. All right, so go to Anderson Advisors Podcast. You can see the uh, replay. And if it's awesome, you can always go back. And if you like tax stuff, you like the banter, this is fun. Shoot on over to it. You can see there's other podcasts too. You can see lots of different ones that are there. You see Clint doing them. I do them. You see the uh, the Tax Tuesdays. We also put the Tax Tuesdays the in your Platinum Portal. I think that they're always going to be sitting in there. So if you want to go get your fill. Somebody says, can I use my LLC to get into a year lease for an apartment? Absolutely, Laura. A lot of people do that. The question is whether they're going to have you as a personal guarantor, and it's going to depend on the length of time that LLC has been alive. Somebody else said, hey, did we already hit the questions on, uh, well, I think that's still uh, the uh, S-Corp in the uh, office space? Yes, we answered that. But uh, you'll get the recording. I would go through and, and fast forward. You'll find it. We always display the question when we're doing them. If you have questions, by all means, shoot it to Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. We'll make sure that we're getting them. Uh, for those of you who are waiting on some answers, I see a whole bunch of you guys that are still going back and forth with the accountants. I'm not going to end the session and kick you off. Uh, it'll continue on, so you'll be able to get your answers, uh, even though the video and the audio will go mute. Thank you to Elliot, to uh, Ian, to Dana. Gosh, we have a, such a cool crew that's willing to do this, to Matthew. Jeff, always thank you, sir. I drag you out of your tax den and out of the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. Patty, Christos, Dana, I think we already said Elliot, Tricia, Ian. I always want to like, I wish I had a video that I could just look at Ian's face as he reads questions because he's, it's always fun to see people's reactions to questions. And Ian has some really good ex- facial expressions. All right, guys, have a great one. We'll see you in two weeks. Throw your questions at us in the meantime and uh, good luck and God bless. 
go out there, do some really great things in this country during the summer. We're all free from the pandemic for the, for the time being. So let's go out there and, and kick some tushies. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 